Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to France Elects, a special world review podcast series on the French election from the New Statesman. I'm Ido Vok. Europe correspondent, as the campaign to be the next president of France heats up. Over the next few months, I'll be joined by some of the sharpest observers of French politics, delving deep into the big issues shaping the race to lead the EU's biggest military power and its second largest economy. This week, we're talking foreign policy, from incumbent Emmanuel Macron's penchant for sweeping statements about global affairs. I think that in Europe particularly, we we need leaders, particularly in the major countries, who are willing to stir up debate. And that impetus rarely comes from here in Germany. So I, I do actually welcome those. To the curious death of full-throated Euroscepticism in French politics. If we left the EU and the Euro, then it would be quite catastrophic for uh, a big majority of Le Pen's constituency. And, and there were a lot of people who ultimately didn't vote for her, and they know that. The European Council on Foreign Relations, Tara Varma, and the New Statesman's Jeremy Cliff will join me later. And we'll have the New Statesman's data guru, Ben Walker, on the latest polling. And finally, there is the will of France to make its own decisions, which is essential for it to believe in its own role and for it to be useful to others. This will is incompatible with the defensive organization in which it is subordinate. In 1966, Charles de Gaulle announced that France would withdraw from NATO's integrated military command structure. In his speech, he restated the tenets of his foreign policy. France is a great power, independent and not subordinate to any global bloc, neither the Americans nor the Soviets. No man looms over contemporary France more than the general, the wartime head of the Free French who dominated politics until the late 1960s. Virtually every political party claims an affiliation to the general, with his influence perhaps nowhere more pervasive than in foreign policy. To varying extents, de Gaulle's thinking on foreign policy is taken up by every modern French leader. Here's current president Emmanuel Macron in Russia in 2018, explaining his view of France's place in the world. It's because I believe in France's foreign policy, which is based on independence. There are subjects on which we have strong alliances with the United States of America, on matters of collective security, and on which we work remarkably well. And there are subjects on which we disagree, and there is no systematic alignment. That question of independence from the world's superpowers faded away with the end of the Cold War, 
but is becoming more relevant with the rise of China and the increasing strategic dilemmas Europe faces. The US would like Europe to ally with it against China as its great power competition with its autocratic rival heats up. But many Europeans would rather the continent, while remaining firmly within the Western camp, assume a more independent position on the world stage. Here's Valérie Pécresse, the centre-right candidate for president, affirming her desire for European strategic autonomy in a recent TV debate. Let us create a European strategic pillar within NATO. Let us assume a form of autonomy within the alliance. Let us grow. I want this question of European strategic autonomy to be asked clearly within the NATO alliance. I think the US is ready to see matters evolve. The winner of the French presidential election will face any number of difficult questions on foreign policy, ranging from how to manage relations with the UK after Brexit, now viewed as the frostiest in recent history, to dealing with a revanchist Russia, massing troops on its border with Ukraine ahead of what many Western governments fear may be an impending invasion. To broach these questions, I'm delighted to be joined today by Tara Varma, head of the Paris office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and the New Statesman's very own writer-at-large, Jeremy Cliff. Thank you both for being here. Tara, if I can start with you. We heard from Macron, the current French president there, talking about the need for France to have an independent foreign policy and to to stand up to the US when required, as well as work with it on other issues. This is a very broad question, but how has Macron developed his foreign policy since coming to office? And, and I ask this because it seems like he often has a tendency to have very grand statements, very big ideas. So we had this famous speech at the Salbonne in 2017 when he talked about the need for further European integration. And then we've had various statements. He he invited Vladimir Putin to his sort of holiday retreat in 2019. And long before the, the current tensions that we're currently seeing, he was saying that we needed Europe and, and France and Russia needed to build a new European security together. We had this uh, this famous statement which shook NATO about NATO being brain dead. So he's a big fan of these kind of big sweeping statements and these big ambitions. But in terms of what he's actually done, where do we stand? You're right. He absolutely likes to present grand ideas. I think the Sorbonne speech, which you mentioned, was clearly the scene setter for him. My sense, almost five years on, is that actually he's looking at building a new French foreign policy trend, which would have pro-Europeanism at its core. And so he's been looking at developing initiatives, you're right, in almost every area on the Indo-Pacific with African partners, with the U.S., with European partners, he's been looking at launching initiatives in the Middle East as well. So it's been he's been extremely active in the diplomatic realm and has has wanted for France to be back. To paraphrase a, a certain other president, and to do that, he's been both giving these big speeches, but he's been trying to adopt a method as well. And I wrote a piece a while back after the NATO brain death comment called the Macron method, where I tried to to show how basically the first part of his strategy was these big speeches. And the second part was 
what I called rocking the boat. So basically presenting uh, European partners with these initiatives, these propositions, and waiting for them to react. And he's done that, you know, I, pretty harshly several times. He was perceived as being very harsh when it came to, to Brexit and being very harsh with the Johnson government at some point on enlargement to the Balkans, to the Western Balkans. He was perceived as, as quite harsh as well. That was in 2019. Also in 2019, as you said, he met in Brégançon in the south of France with Putin and a few days later gave this speech at the ambassador's conference where he mentioned the fact that the deep state and the French administration shouldn't fight against to have an inflection or a rapprochement with Russia. And then he gave this infamous interview now to The Economist where he mentioned a lot of stuff, but he did say that basically the fact that we hadn't reacted to Turkey launching a military incursion in northern Syria showed that NATO was brain death. And the starting point of the discussion was basically a, a Middle Eastern issue. But then what remained was this NATO brain death idea. And it completely fed into the suspicion that there is some form of complacency in the French political system when it comes to Russia. And to be fair, it does transcend traditional political fault lines. And so when you look at what he's wanted to do, from his point of view, he's tried to defend European um, security, European strategic autonomy as much as possible. But there has been a perception from other European partners that that hasn't worked so well. And what he calls European strategic autonomy will have to go against the United States. My sense, to be honest, is that there is there is a misperception there. Uh, it, my understanding of how he sees things is that strategic autonomy is supposed to be a form of chosen interdependence and not an imposed interdependence. We live in an interdependent world. Strategic autonomy is supposed to give you the means, the financial resources, the human resources, not to be autarcic, not to be independent, but to be autonomous when you need it to be. But strategic autonomy in Europe will only work if you have alliances and partners. And I think that's pretty clear. So contrary to what we're hearing in a lot of circles in Western and Eastern Europe, European strategic autonomy doesn't mean going against the transatlantic partner. I would say quite quite the contrary. Jeremy, in that uh, introduction there, we had a clip from Valérie Pécresse, who is the centre-right candidate for president and one of Macron's strongest challengers. And in it, she talks about the value of European strategic autonomy. And actually, in the wider debate from which I sourced the clip, she's actually relatively favourable. And she, she speaks relatively favourably of Macron's record and Macron's kind of broad foreign policy um, approach. In terms of Macron's main challengers, to what extent do you think they are challenging Macron's record and Macron's positions on foreign policy issues? And on the contrary, to, to what extent are they positioning themselves in the lineage of, of what Macron has done, particularly on issues like European strategic autonomy? I think the way to see the debates in French politics, particularly on Europe and Europe's sovereignty or autonomy or whichever phrase is flavour of the day, is as moving between the two poles of de Gaulle on the one side and Jean Monnet on the other. De Gaulle you've already spoken of as this uh, bastion of French independence and sovereignty. And on the other hand, Monet, one of the founders of the European project and an icon for federalists. And Macron 
I think, in his own European policy, has tried to weave these two traditions together and sometimes moves between them. So you have moments where his actions seem to speak more to the, the Gaullist tradition of French mercurial freelancing on the world stage and others where he appears like, quote unquote, the good European. So I think you, you can see the, the, the broader political spectrum in that context too. So you have Pécresse, I think, works within the kind of conventional centre-right French vision of foreign policy, very much in the, in, in the Gaullist tradition, wedded to the European project. And then on the, the, the far left and the far right, you have greater Euroscepticism, greater scepticism about the Atlantic Alliance, and I think in some cases more of an instinctive enthusiasm about relations with Russia. And so whether this will play a big role in the campaign, actually, I'd, I'd ask Tara that question as the one of us who's sitting in, in, in Paris. But I get the sense from here in Berlin that Macron wants to make foreign policy one of the dividing lines in the election. He's trying to push it up the agenda in terms of salience, I think presumably because he thinks it is a a, a subject that shows him in a relatively good light. And certainly watching Pécresse's interventions from here, I don't get the sense that she has a huge amount of foreign policy depth. I don't know if Tara, Tara might disagree with me on that, but it, it might well be something that, that that shows him in a good light. If I could just briefly add one more thing on, on Tara's previous point. I think I, like Tara, see the case for these big sweeping Macron speeches. They get a certain amount of mockery, I think, from particularly from capitals like Washington, London. It's not it's not to everyone's taste here in Berlin either. I do think there is a role for these big grand interventions, whether they're these long speeches or interviews in which he provokes and he tries to disrupt. I think that in Europe particularly, we we need leaders, particularly in the major countries, who are willing to stir up debate. And that impetus rarely comes from here in Germany. So I, I do actually welcome those. And I, I also see a case for the way that Macron inserts himself into international crises as a broker or as a as a sort of someone bringing new initiatives so whether it's which is something he's tried to do across the globe whether it's the Indo-Pacific or Lebanon or the Sahel or Libya I think the problem is almost he lacks a, if there's a criticism to level at him it the lacks a sort of middle ground between those two things you've got the kind of the grand sweeping vision and then these kind of this kind of roving of the the world looking for crises to solve and there's a sort of middle ground which is the sort of coalition building nurturing partners bringing people on board I think that's perhaps where he's been weakest as a foreign policy president. One of the particularities of this election is that it's taking place as France holds the rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union, which I think happens uh, less than once a decade. And um, it will actually conclude as France uh, will still hold the presidency. And Europe has been inserted into the campaign debate quite in quite a strong way, including intentionally by Macron, who has very much attempted to use the platform that the presidency offers him to de facto campaign, although he hasn't um, yet announced that he's running for president, but everyone expects that that will come within weeks. And I suppose one of one of the interesting aspects of that is that there's really been a shift in terms of how Europe is debated in France. There is almost no full-fat Euroscepticism, as perhaps our British listeners will recognise in terms of uh, French political debates. Almost no one wants to withdraw France from the EU. Marine Le Pen no longer talks about it. Éric Zemmour has has signalled that he's no big fan of the European Union, but um, nonetheless, he doesn't want to take France out, neither of, of the EU nor of the Euro. And of course, Macron and Pécresse are pro-Europeans in the sort of centre-right tradition of people like Jean Monnet, as, as you said. Tara, what do you attribute this death of, of strong Euroscepticism 
two. Is it because Brexit has shown that leaving the EU is really quite difficult or has, on the contrary, there been a change in, in the perception of the EU since Macron came to office arguing against Le Pen? So I'd say there is, uh, and I'd like to come back afterwards to some of the points that Jeremy made, but just to answer this question, in the second round of the election last time around, when uh, Macron was against Le Pen, she campaigned quite a bit for Frexit. It was a year after the Brexit vote, a few months after Donald Trump was voted into power. And uh, she campaigned quite a lot on, on, on the advice of one of her advisors, uh, Florian Philippot, who left her campaign immediately. He was very much anti-Eurozone uh, and so anti-euro, the currency, he was anti-EU, he said we needed to get out. There was this momentum, anti-political integration, anti-multilateralism. So there was this momentum. And the Macron team and others at some point showed that actually if pensioners, if we left the Eurozone and left the EU, pensioners would lose a majority of their pensions. And these were the people, this was a large segment of the people who voted for Le Pen at that point. And when this, there was a whole case that was made that actually if we left the EU and the euro, then it would be quite catastrophic for a, a big majority of Le Pen's constituency. And, and there were a lot of people who ultimately didn't vote for her. And they know that the Front National, then now called Rassemblement National, uh, they conducted a number of studies and they realized that this was actually a massive deal breaker for their constituency. And so she completely dropped this narrative just after the second round of the election that she lost in 2017. Macron has been pushing a pro-European narrative for the past five years now to a point which I think has become also dangerous for us because his team also pushed this narrative very strongly, this kind of dialectic of pro-Europeans versus nationalists. And they pushed that during the 2019 European Parliament elections too. And they're finding themselves a bit in a bind now because actually there are a lot of the French candidates, you are right, who don't want to leave the EU nor the euro, but who are still quite Eurosceptic and criticize the EU quite a lot. And they position themselves more on the Orban or then Salvini type of positioning, which is to say they want actually to change the EU from the inside, which I think is also a dangerous narrative. So they don't say they're anti-EU anymore. And so the dialectic between the pro-Europeans and the anti-Europeans doesn't work so well. And I think this is going to be a big struggle for the Macron team now to show that they are pro-European in a certain way and that this certain pro-European way is supposed to be the one which is the best for the French people if he wants to win the election, uh, the presidential election now. It is certain that Europe, so I should say this for your listeners, I'm sure most of them know it, but traditionally uh, foreign policy doesn't play a big role at all in French presidential campaigns, which is a bit strange because when the person is ultimately elected as the president of the French uh, Republic, I would say 80% of the job is then European affairs and foreign policy. So we have a number of people who get to this stage and don't really have the qualifications for the job. And ultimately, they all end up liking foreign policy quite a bit because usually domestic politics puts them in a complicated situation and they're quite happy then to do mostly European and foreign policy. But it was a bit the same for Macron initially because he had very little foreign policy experience before he came to power, but his platform, his political platform was very much on European affairs. I think the fact that we're 
Two years into COVID now, the European Union has played a major role in getting vaccines on the continent, putting together the COVAX mechanism that also allows for exportation of European vaccines to other partners, to Africa, to Latin America, to Asia. This has been particularly striking. They're going to, I think Macron's team is going to talk a lot about the fact that last year, now almost a year and a half ago, under the German presidency of the Council of the EU, there was the new European budget that was voted, which agreed for debt mutualization inside the EU, which had, you know, which was a big taboo that was broken because of calls for financial solidarity in the midst of the pandemic. So there have been a, a number of changes. There have been a number of changes also in terms of how these terms of strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty have totally um, infused in the European debate. Uh, European a strategic sovereignty is now officially part of the coalition treaty for the new German government. The new Dutch government is using the term strategic autonomy. So we see that there have been evolutions of how these expressions have been completely integrated inside the European debate when actually just a couple of years ago, they were considered completely French. They were considered not palatable at all not valid in the European context. It was really seen as an, an import of a French idea, a for, almost a forced import of a French idea into the European debate. And I think this has changed a little bit. Jeremy was also absolutely right in saying that Macron is going to play the foreign policy card a lot. I think he had planned in doing so initially in any case. And now the situation on the Russia-Ukraine border is a strategic surprise that is forcing him to even up his game even more on foreign policy. Clearly, none of the other candidates that we know of today have an experience in foreign policy. Whatever happens, they will be, if, if someone else is voted um, as French president in, in a few weeks, that person will still have to deal with the Russia-Ukraine crisis because I don't think it will be gone so soon. And so he's going to show that he is the person who knows all the other leaders of the European Union member states. He knows Biden, he knows Putin, he knows Xi Jinping, he knows Erdogan, he knows all the European institution leaders. And he is, he's tried to transcend the goal quite a lot, I would say, in this first mandate, in this first five years, trying to show how you can be both strategically autonomous and at the same time an important partner and ally. And I think he's going to transcend in a way Mitterrand now. If he wins, which would be, a, a, you know, it hasn't happened in 20 years that an incumbent wins a second round, a second mandate of the presidential election in France. So that would already be quite a, a difference. If he does win, he's going to be above, he's going to portray himself as being the statesman above all the other candidates. And I think that's also going to be different from how he portrayed himself in 2017. In 2017, in just before the second round of the presidential election, there was this famous debate between Le Pen and him. And at the time, he played really the technical card. So she mentioned a few important industrial dossier files. And he contradicted her saying, well, actually, you don't know anything. This is how this file on Alcatel, on SFR, on nuclear issues, this is how it's going. And I know them by heart. And he went really little point, little technical point by little technical point, really destroying her argument. I don't think he will do that now. I think quite the contrary. He'll try and position himself well above all the others. But that's just my hypothesis. Jeremy, if I can finish with you. Macron has, he's long stressed that Europe and France and by extension Europe need to be allowed 
a certain amount of of autonomy with regard to how their its alliance with with the U.S. and he says France and and Europe should be allies and and good partners with the U.S. They shouldn't be expected to automatically align with 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 the U.S. on certain issues, particularly on China. You're in Berlin. How is this kind of uh, positioning in terms of the growing great power competition between the U.S. and China? How is that viewed in in Europe, and how might the upcoming election affects that question? I think it is viewed differently in different countries. So I think it's most concerning in the Eastern European states that most look to the US and the Transatlantic Alliance and NATO to guarantee their security in the face of a revanchist Russia. I think it has more resonance in countries like Spain, Italy, to some extent the Benelux that are more confident with the idea of a more independent Europe. But I think it's also worth stressing that this is not new. This is not just something true of Macron. And I think it's interesting that Tara brings up the comparison with Mitterrand. And indeed, some of Macron's own most influential foreign policy advisors, or, or should we say mentors, are figures from the Mitterrand era. So figures like uh, Hubert Vedrin, who famously was a, an advisor to Mitterrand in the Elysee, foreign minister under Jospin, who famously said that France is a power, a middle power of global influence, which is a sort of uh, to say that France though though not a, a US-style hyperpower, can and should have a role around the world. There's also figures like Jean-Pierre Chevonnement, who's also a, a Mitterrandist fig- figure. And, and I think that just goes to show that you have this depth of the French tradition of seeking some sort of middle way between international superpowers that, that long precedes the Macron presidency. And he is governing within that tradition. And it's a point that I've, I've tried to make here in Berlin from the very start with Macron. I think there are a lot of expectations that he would be he would fall into line with German orthodoxies on 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 the EU early on in his presidency because he seemed this very Germany friendly president because he made big efforts to reach out to Germany and and a point that I remember making at the time was yes he is very Europeanist yes he is making a big effort to rebuild a relationship with Germany but he is also a French president and French go- presidents govern in that Fifth Republic tradition that does seek a role for France beyond just the transatlantic alliance. And you've seen that thinking, you know, across the piece in his foreign policy actions, most recently, and perhaps most strikingly, of course, in this attempt to try and peel Russia away from China, as he sees it. That's the big strategic thought behind his, some would say, ill-fated attempts to woo Vladimir Putin, is that he can do a sort of reverse Kissinger. And just as the, the US tried to peel China away from the Soviet Union back in the 70s, he wants to peel Russia away from China in the 2020s. And I think that all sits within that broader French tradition going back to de Gaulle. And I think that whether Macron or, let's say, Pécresse, who is probably, at least in my view, the, the next most likely person to win the, the election, ends up president for the next five years, I think that will presumably continue. Thank you both for, for that discussion. And I'm sure we can uh, continue talking about these questions over upcoming episodes. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying France Elects, you might want to consider subscribing. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 12 weeks for £12 or €12 in Europe. Just go to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. And you can read all our international coverage at newstatesman.com slash international. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finally, let's get the latest on the polling ahead of April's vote with Ben Walker. Anyone tuning into France just now, the people who are currently the frontrunners, I would say, are similar to what we saw last time around. So Mr. Macron is currently in first place, as he has been for about the past four or five years now. Current polling has him on 24%. Uh, the numbers don't really matter. It just You just need sort of need to know who the frontrunners are here. So Macron's ahead, 24%. Marine Le Pen is still, albeit just, in second place with 18%. Uh, Valérie Pécresse is on 17%, one percentage point behind Le Pen. And she did have a period when she was re- revealed in, 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 in all her splendour to the electorate where she was leading uh, Le Pen and even on, on one or two polls leading Macron, but she's faded away now. Coming up in fourth place is Eric Zimmer, who also had a little bit of a surge in there and then sort of faded away. He's on 13%. And then representing the phalanx of all left-wing candidates at the bottom is Jean-Luc Mélenchon with just 9% of the estimated vote right now. But just bear in mind, about 20 to 25% of French voters are wanting to back a left-wing candidate at the moment, but they are so splintered. So Mélenchon's the only one standing out right now. And that's something we, we spoke about last week. How volatile does it currently look? Because as you said, the second, third and fourth candidate have at most 5% between them, yeah. which really doesn't represent very many voters changing their minds and potentially then changing the second round matchup. 
Are there any indications that voters are looking quite volatile or, or by contrast, have they decided on their choice? Yeah. yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, the stability of the past few years of Macron being in the lead, Le Pen second, does, in my mind, mask a lot of the voter uncertainty beneath the surface. There is a lot there. And I'll, I'll just give you two examples. So in 2017, there was a 14-point gap between the number of rich and poor people who voted. So if, if that doesn't make sense, in 2017, 80% earning more than €3,000 a month voted. And this compared to just 66% for those earning less than €1,200. Now, that gap, that difference has grown in recent years. At the moment, around 80% of those earning more than 3 k say they will vote. That's, you know, that's unchanged on 2017. But this compares to about 60% for those earning less than €1,200. That is, that's a margin. The gap has gone from 14 points to about 20 points, the difference between rich and poor people who vote. Okay, Women as well. In 2017, the number of women who voted was about on parity with the number of men. And at the moment, 70% of men say they will vote compared to 60% for women. So you can see there's a lot of uh, ground to be made up in terms of infusing the electorate. You have poor people you need to start exciting to vote and women as well. Generally speaking, in historical terms, people with less money tend to vote for more right-leaning candidates, more and more those on the extremes. And women, however, do tend to be a little bit more progressive than men, albeit, I should say, marginally. So, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty there, really. Just finally, we've seen that Macron is consistently way ahead. In terms of who he faces in the second round, are there candidates he is looking much more likely to beat? And are there candidates which he's, which he's more afraid of, which polls show a tighter second round matchup against? Yeah, yeah. Polling regularly asks three hypothetical matchups. So it's Macron versus Le Pen, Macron versus Pécresse, and Macron versus Zemmour. So the easier one to answer is Eric Zemmour versus Emmanuel Macron. That is basically 60 40 for Macron. With Le Pen, it's more 55 45 for Macron. And with Pécresse, it's more 54 46. Now, in my mind, based on what I've been looking at, I think there is that 54-46 for Pecres is actually potentially overstating Macron just a little bit slightly. And I'll sort of, sort of explain why uh, here. Voters on the left in France tend to be pretty disaffected when it comes to the second round in elections. In 2017, the vast majority of those that voted for left candidates did turn out in the second round, but we're talking between 75 and 80 percent compared to 90 percent for those who backed Macron first time round. Now, this time round, just about 65 to 70% of those that bet those same left-wing candidates say they will vote again. So you're looking at a collapse in enthusiasm right now from left-wing voters to actually vote of uh, potentially between 10 and 15 points. Now that is primarily driving the narrower polls between Macron and his more right-wing opponents at the moment. Left-wingers simply aren't as enthused as they used to be about voting. And interestingly enough, bear this in mind, though they are somewhat bothered by Le Pen and Zemmour, Le Pen has, of course, the toxicity, ditto Zemmour, they are not as bothered about voting Macron to reject Becrest. I would be minded to imagine if the second round was Macron versus Becrest and if left voters don't feel appropriately catered for by Macron, Becrest would have good reasons to think this is winnable for her. Less so Le Pen, much less so uh, Zemmour. Thank you for coming on. I'm sure we'll have you back on as the campaign progresses to talk about how the polls are developing and uh, what's likely to happen. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks. That's it for this episode of France Elect. Join us in two weeks' time for a discussion of 
the right in the campaign. We'll discuss the competition on the far right between Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, the ongoing difficulties that Valérie Pécresse faces, and how Emmanuel Macron has governed, arguably, as a centre-right candidate. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.